1947, a fellow by the name of Robert Pierce worked for an organization called Youth for Christ. Its mission was to evangelize the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. His particular assignment was to take the gospel to China. As he was on his way to China, he met a missionary teacher who presented him with a battered and abandoned child. Unable to care for the child herself, she asked Pierce, and what I found to be a rather bold question, what are you going to do about this child? Pierce gave the woman his last five dollars and agreed to send the same amount every week to help the woman as she cared for the child. Pierce did eventually make it to China as he preached in Revival meetings where thousands made public, uh, made public commitments to be followers of Jesus during his four months of evangelistic campaigns. Now while Pierce was there, he saw widespread hunger and just a general sense of suffering that was taking place in the country. He felt a deep sense of compassion for these people. And while he was there, he wrote these words in the flyleaf of his Bible. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. God answered his prayer, and Pierce's heart was indeed broken for the poverty and suffering he saw in China. While he was there, he took lots of pictures and made videos of the things that he saw. And when China was closed to missionaries and he was sent back to America, he began to show these pictures and these videos uh, of the suffering to the church audiences, pleading with them to give money to help these children. In 1950, he incorporated this personal crusade, and it became what we now call World Vision. In 1959, a journalist wrote that Pierce cannot conceal his true emotions. He seems to me to be one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men I've ever met. A pastor said about Pierce that he prayed more earnestly and importunely than anyone else I'd ever known. It was as though through prayer... It was as though prayer burned within him. Bob Pierce functioned from a broken heart. Right? It was his broken heart for the suffering of others that led him to be able to make a big difference in the world around him. So I want to ask tonight, what breaks your heart? What breaks our hearts? Are our hearts broken over the things that break God's heart? Nehemiah, his heart was, and tonight we'll see why that matters. Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're moving from Ezra into Nehemiah. It's on page 371 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're just going to look at the first four verses tonight. It says the words of Nehemiah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from captivity in the province, they are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The title of the message tonight is Broken. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come tonight with a desire to learn what we need to learn from your word. 
Father, we could take it into our lives, that we could sink into our hearts, and it would change us, that we would be the people you want us to be. Father, there is a lot in this world that's hard. There's a lot of suffering and things going on in this world that we, as we look at, we know it cannot be your will or your want for this world. Many things, God, must break your heart. Tonight we plead with you, as Robert Pierce did, that our hearts would be broken the things that break your heart. Father, as we look at what how Nehemiah responded to the situation at Jerusalem, Father, tenderize our hearts so that we can respond to the things going on in our world in the same way. Father, fill this place tonight with your glory and your presence. Let us know that you're here. For truly there is no need for, for words from me or my cleverness. Or, or Lord, prevent me from doing anything that would seem like emotional manipulation. Lord, any brokenness that we have, it must come from you. We need you to break our hearts. We don't need our emotions twisted. We just need you, God. To give us your heart. For this world and for these people. That we would be broken over the things that break your heart. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me for your glory. We ask in Jesus name. For his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Nehemiah. It continues the story of life after the return of exile. That began in the book of Ezra. Now most of the book of Nehemiah reads like a journal. Uh, of the man Nehemiah. Now for reasons we're not entirely sure of. Nehemiah did not return. With any of the groups of exiles. According to verse 11. He was the cupbearer to the king. So it's quite possible. That Nehemiah because of his position as a cupbearer. Was prevented from going back. It wasn't that he didn't want to. It's that he was not allowed to. Now 13 years have passed. From Ezra 10 where we were last week. To Nehemiah 1. If you remember, Ezra 10, it ends with kind of the embers of revival beginning to burn among the people. By the time we get to Nehemiah, what we find is either that revival did not come to fruition or it had fully burned out by the time of Nehemiah. Where we are tonight, Jerusalem is in a mess. In Jerusalem, the people aren't worshiping God according to the law. In Jerusalem, the rich are taking advantage and oppressing the poor. In Jerusalem, there's not really any sort of organized government functioning the way that it's supposed to work. And in Jerusalem, the walls are still in ruins and the gates are still burned down. Now, massive changes are going to take place in the book of Nehemiah. From where we are now to where we're going to end up in Nehemiah 13, massive changes take place. Proper government is going to be established. Proper worship of God is going to be restored. The people are going to rise up from a sense of, uh, of, of lethargy and, and laziness and begin to work and to work hard and to be inspired to do this. They're going to, to stop oppressing their brethren and they're going to, to set them free. And the walls are going to be rebuilt in record time. Now, in a lot of ways, everything that happens after Nehemiah 1 happens because of Nehemiah 1. The events of Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4 are foundational to the entire book. Everything that happens after Nehemiah 1 happens because of what we're looking at in these first four verses. Right? So if we don't understand what's going on here 
And what, why Nehemiah responds the way that he does, we won't understand later why everything changes, why what happens, happens. Now at the same time, what happens in Nehemiah in these first four verses, it really, it kind of needs to happen in us as well. Right? If we are to do the work of God as disciples of Jesus Christ, then we need to have a similar sort of heart response to the issues of our time that Nehemiah had in his. Right? Now remember, as we've looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, we've said that, that the work of God, that disciples of Christ, that we're meant to do, we're meant to, to save the lost. We're meant to restore the prodigal, to heal broken hearts, to set captives free, to reconcile ruptured relationships. Or rather, we're meant to work for that and Jesus does it through us. Right? We're meant to do the work and the Spirit of God and the Son of God do that work through us. But before we will actually do this work and do it the way that we should, we need to have the sort of experience in our lives that Nehemiah has in his. So let's look and see what happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king. He's going about his daily life. And there have been groups of Israelites have returned from exile back to Jerusalem. This was a very hopeful thing for someone like Nehemiah. As from what I can gather from what it looks like, it appears that Nehemiah had in his mind that things were there flourishing. Right? He, he has in his mind that as the exiles have gone back, that they have set everything aright. And now Jerusalem is functioning as it had in the days of old, in the days of the great kings and the stories that he's heard. So his brother comes for a visit and he asks, how are things? And to me, I can almost hear him asking with a sense of anticipation, tell me all the good things that are going on in Jerusalem right now. And rather than telling him that things are flourishing, his brother says the people are in distress and reproach. Again, as we get into the book, we're going to find that there is famine and economic depression in Jerusalem. That there is persecution from non-Jews. That there is oppression from Jews among their brethren. They're taking advantage of those who are poor and enslaving them. The walls are still torn down and they are burned. Now the walls, because of the focus of Nehemiah, seems to be one of the main things that Nehemiah is especially broken about. Now walls in, in Nehemiah's day, they were the first line of defense against the enemy. A city without walls was like a sitting duck just waiting on any band of raiders to come in and conquer the city. The walls being torn down was a message to the world that the people of God were helpless. Now more than the walls being torn down being a sign of helplessness for the people and being for defense, the walls being down was a sign of shame to God. Right? It was a way of seeing shame and reproach on the glory of God. It was saying God had brought them back, but God could not restore the city in the way that it was meant to be restored. That's what breaks Nehemiah's heart. And I love that, that in this passage, Nehemiah's friends, they don't gloss over it. When Nehemiah says, what's going on? They don't say, well, things could be better. They don't say, well, they're better than they were. I mean, they just lay it all out in just ugly detail. He says that there is great distress, there is reproach, the wall is down and the gates are burned with fire. Now, Nehemiah, he doesn't try to, to try to make it up either. Oh, well, 
it leaves their home. He doesn't try to pass it off. He doesn't try to act like it's no big deal. He lets these facts, ugly as they are, sink down into his heart and then break his heart. His response to this information is powerful. He It says in verse 4 that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now many days, we don't know exactly how long many days were. But in later chapter, chapter 2, we're going to look. And it seems like all of the preparation of chapter 1 leading into chapter 2 is probably about four months. So Nehemiah's brokenness over the situation in Jerusalem, it's not a tear runs down his cheek, that's sad, gosh, but oh well, moving on with life. He is deeply, profoundly broken hearted over the situation in Jerusalem. Now something about that that's really important to keep in mind is that the walls being down, this is not a recent tragedy that's happened to Jerusalem. The walls being torn down, the walls were torn down and the gates were burned when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered the city around 140 years ago. I mean, this is kind of big because Jerusalem had been in this same condition all of Nehemiah's life. He had never personally known Jerusalem to be anything other than a broken down shell of a former glorious city. He had never seen the temple built. He had never seen the walls restored. He had never seen it functioning outside of distress and reproach. This is all he had ever known from his hometown. But on this day, it was more than he could take. On this day, his heart was broken over the city, the people of God, and what all of that had become. Nehemiah's brokenness over the situation in Jerusalem was the catalyst that led to everything else that happened in this book. His broken-hearted response to the situation in Jerusalem is what motivates him to talk to the king and ask for permission to go back. It's what motivates him to risk his life to try to, to get the walls rebuilt. It's what motivates him that when there are people threatening to attack as they're working, to say, work with one hand, hold a sword with the other, but we're going to rebuild the wall. No brokenness on Nehemiah's part. It would have meant that there was no restored worship of God. No brokenness on Nehemiah's part meant no restored government in Jerusalem. No brokenness on Nehemiah's part meant no people inspired to work and to organize and to do the work that needed to be done. No burden on Nehemiah's part means no people freed from oppression. And it means no walls rebuilt. Everything that happens in the book of Nehemiah happens because of his response in verse 4. Nehemiah's heart being broken over the spiritual and, con- and uh, the physical and spiritual condition of his people, it led him to do all of the things that he did. It compelled him to do that. Now that's important for us to remember. Like, and it's also important to know that Nehemiah's heart is merely a reflection of God's heart. God's heart was for his people. God's heart was for his city. Nehemiah's relationship with God was such that his heart was broken over the same things that broke God's heart. 
And that brokenness compelled him to do what he could to make a difference. And this is our, our lesson. Now, we didn't do a handout because there's really only this is only the one point. There's just a few other things we're going to talk about tonight. But that which breaks God's heart should break my heart. I mean, that's the main thing. This is what has to happen in our hearts and in our lives if we're to do the work of God. I mean, if we are to be a, a people that rise up and see souls saved and prodigals restored, captives set free, broken hearts healed, ruptured relationships restored, our hearts must be broken over the things that break our, or break our God's heart. Because truly, when you read Scripture and you look at the world, there are things in this world that break God's heart and they ought to break our hearts as well. Our relationship with God should be such that what burdens Him, what breaks His heart, breaks our heart. Now for these facts, for these issues to break our hearts, we must, like Nehemiah, look at the facts with brutal honesty. And that's a hard thing to do. Because there is a big pull in our day to gloss over uncomfortable facts. To act as though they aren't facts or to minimize how bad they are. There's a picture that I've frequently seen. And it's a, of two lines. People standing in two lines. And one line has no one in it. The other line goes off the, off the picture. And the, the empty line says hard facts. And the line that's got all kinds of people in it says comfortable lies. And that's the pull in our day. We, many people, would much rather have soothing, comfortable lives rather than have the hard, cold facts. If we are to be disciples of Jesus that rise up and do the work in our day and time, we cannot be those people that want the soothing lies, the comfortable lies. We must look at the cold, hard facts. We must let them sink deep into our hearts. We must let them break our hearts. But we must not let them cause us to despair of hope. We have to find the balance of my heart is broken because of these things. But there is hope because of my God and what my God can do. And then we are compelled to action. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is just share some facts. These are all facts. That must break God's heart. And should break our hearts as well. Now a few of these facts are new. You're probably going to have heard all of them before. But probably not altogether. There is a weight to what we're talking about tonight. And, and that's just the way it has to be. But it's good for us to be reminded of cold hard facts. So they can weigh heavily on our hearts. And break them. Over the things that break God's heart. One of the things that breaks God's heart is the American church is in decline. We talk about this frequently. I read something today, and this is the first time I've seen it. So if you've heard, if I've talked about this in the past, I've said between 3,000, 3,500 churches close a year. That statistic was several years old. Currently, between six and 10,000 churches close in America every year. That's not worldwide. It's in the United States, between six and 10,000 churches close every year. That, that's around one to 200 churches that will close this week alone. That's a lot. Many of the churches that don't close have plateaued, which means they're, they're not moving forward. 
They're just kind of stagnated. They are where they are and they're not moving forward. They're not going back, but they're not moving forward. Some of those that won't close are actively in a state of decline. So they're, they've stopped going forward and now they've started going backward and how many people they have and what they're doing and what they're accomplishing. And if things don't change and turn around within the next few years, those churches will close. Now, again, statistically, churches that decline and plateau rarely turn around because turning around is hard. It requires changes in our philosophy, in attitudes, in the things that we do, in our mentality about many things. And a lot of churches want to change so long as they can stay exactly the way that they are. And so most, most churches that plateau and decline eventually close. Very, very rare is the church that actually turns around. While six to 10,000 churches close a year, only three to 4,000 churches are being planted every year. There's a big deficit there. We lose significantly more churches every year than we gain. And again, this is in America. This isn't worldwide, just in America. In America, church attendance is declining. In the last decade, church attendance in all Protestant denominations has dropped by 9.5%, while the population has increased by 11, a little over 11%. According to one Christian pollster, while 40% of Americans claim to attend church, only 17% of Americans actually do attend church on any given weekend. Now what that means on a practical level is that the church in America is losing. We are losing churches faster than we can plant them. In many of the churches that are remaining, they are, there are no souls being saved. There are no prodigals being restored. There are no broken hearts being healed. There are no captives being set free. There are no ruptured relationships being restored. They are not making an impact in their community through the message of the gospel. And as the gospel, as the population increases, the church is decreasing. The church in America loses ground Every passing year. How many years can this continue before the church in America is all but gone? Now, our, our initial reaction is to say, well, that would never happen in America, right? Not, not America. But before we would take that, that mindset and say that wouldn't happen here, we should look at Europe, particularly Germany. Germany is one that's fascinating. I mean, the Protestant Reformation was born. Germany is the land of Luther. I mean, at one point in time, German Christians were, were burned at the stake rather than deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet now, the church in Germany is all but extinct. I mean, churches in Germany are museums, not churches. I wonder if when all of that decline started happening in Germany, did they say, this is the land of Luther? It'll never happen here. Did they turn a blind eye? Did they assume it would be okay? And it wasn't. And I don't have time for this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I was reading today in my daily Bible reading. And it was in 1 Samuel 4. And the armies of God, or the armies of Israel, are going out to war against the Philistines, and they've been defeated. So what they do is they send back to Jerusalem. They're living in rebellion. They're not doing anything God wants. 
But they send back to Shiloh. And they get the ark. And they refer to the ark as it. Send it. It will deliver us. It will help us. And the ark comes in. And they scream with such excitement that the ground shakes underneath their excitement. And then they go into battle and lose. The ark is taken. The priests are murdered. The people are scattered. And and what I thought was, they saw the ark, not as the presence of God, but as a good luck charm. And as long as the ark was with them, there was victory. And I wonder, as we look at the churches declining in America, do we say, yeah, but there's a church here and there, and the church is our good luck charm. As long as it's here, we'll be fine. And are we screaming and shouting with an excitement that really should not be there? Because we're going into a battle, we're going to lose badly. What happened in Europe will happen in America. If things do not change. It's tragic. You have to know that breaks God's heart. And it ought to break ours as well. Something else that would break God's heart. Is that believers and unbelievers. Live essentially the same lives. I read an article this week. Based on a book called Unchristian. And the book analyzes nationwide study. Conducted by the Barna Group. Now the Barna Groups are big Christian pollsters. They That's all that they do. And the authors sought to compare the lives of Christians and non-Christians to see how they differed. So I'm going to read you some of the results from the article. The Barna Group found that Christians cuss less in public. And the article makes a point to say that the modifier in public is important. Because while in public they cuss less, apparently in private it's about the same. Christians give more to charitable causes. Christians buy fewer lottery tickets. And and this one was interesting. Christians are less likely to recycle. Uh, And the guy that was writing the article said, on a whole, I suppose that's better than nothing. I wouldn't exactly say that we're being a radical presence by cussing less. But it could be worse. And he goes on to say it is worse. In the same study, Barna found that Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to view pornographic websites, to get drunk. To do illegal drugs or take prescription drugs that are not prescribed to them. To be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation. Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to have intentionally done something to get even with someone in the last 30 days. Now, that isn't the non-Christian's perception of Christians. These are Christians who were confessing to this. It was the, the author of the article said that everybody got to be anonymous. And nothing like, nothing opens up honesty like anonymity. So these are, this isn't an unbeliever saying, well, I think Christians are doing this just as much as we do. These are Christians saying, this is how much I do this. This is what I've done. This is how I live my life. It's no surprise then, the article goes on, that while 85% of non-Christians say they know at least one Christian, only 15% thought the person's lifestyle was significantly different than their own. Non-Christians, he says, don't think we're different because we're not different. But we should be. Now the tragedy of what this means is most Christians, at least the ones that were polled, they do not live significantly different lives than those who reject God's authority, deny His existence, and reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ For their salvation. 
You have to know that breaks God's heart. And it ought to break ours as well. Something else, many youths don't see faith as important. Again, according to Barna, only 46% of young people that are in church that they polled feel their faith is important to them. Right, so think about that. I don't know how, again, I don't know how many people they polled or how they, did their, how they do it, but Barna is a credible group. But less than half of young people who are involved in church feel their faith is important to their lives. Now this isn't polling unbelievers. Do you think faith is important? This is polling church kids. And less than half of church kids who identify as Christians, profess faith in Jesus, and yet less than half of them, or over half of them, do not consider their faith to be a significant importance to their life. You have to know. I mean, when you look at, like Malachi, when God says that one of the reasons He wants marriage to be there is for godly children to come from it, you have to know. That breaks God's heart. It ought to break ours as well. Going along the lines of young people not seeing faith is important. Many, really most young people leave the church. Should not be surprising considering how few find their faith to be important. That statistically somewhere around 75% of teens active in their youth groups today will not attend church within five years of graduating high school. To make matters, really to make it worse, to think of it in our terms, right? So that it's not just a nameless, faceless statistic. If you, if you take our teen ministry, our children's ministry at the church, 30-ish kids that would be a part of that. If this statistic holds true in our church, 20-something of those kids will not be in church within five years of graduating high school. Now, those aren't nameless, faceless numbers. These are your kids and my kids and your grandkids. These are people we see regularly. But we don't, I mean, in that way, we don't necessarily even need a statistic for that. Church is 50-something years old. How many times have we seen this play out in 50-something years of our church? Think about all the kids that you've seen grow up in this church. Grow up, graduate, and leave. How many of those kids are still in church today? Not, not, not even necessarily a free will Baptist church. At this point, we'll take an evangelical church. It's not very many, is it? Large numbers of kids who've grown up right here with us grow up, go off, leave the church, and never come back. It's a terrifying statistic. It terrifies me. Again, knowing that God wants godly children from our marriages, from our families, you have to know it breaks God's heart. And it ought to break our hearts as well. Spiritual apathy in the church is, is rampant. I'm going to have to hurry. I can't spend all this time on everything. Spiritual apathy in the church is seen in a lot of ways. One would be what I would call biblical illiteracy. Our, our generation of Christians, we have more access to God's Word, more opportunities to study God's Word 
than, than basically any generation before us. You know, in generations past, a church had one Bible like this. That was like the only Bible. It was chained to the pulpit. And if you wanted to study the Bible, you had to come to the church and stand in the pulpit and study. Now, we have pew Bibles. We all have our own Bibles. We have electronic Bibles. If you have access to the Internet, you can Google free Bible, and there will be a million different places that will send you a free Bible if you just put in your name and address. And yet, this generation of Christians is largely more biblically illiterate than the generations who only had one Bible in the whole church community. And it's seen in the fact of how similar believers and unbelievers are in their morals, their values, their priorities, their attitudes, actions, reaction, and speech. It's seen in the fact that many Christians today, many professing believers today, are more influenced by famous Christian authors, bloggers, and social media influencers than they are by Scripture. Even though many of these same social media influencers will deny foundational truths. They will deny the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. They will deny salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They will deny the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet they have more influence over millions of professing believers than the Bible itself does. Spiritual apathy is seen in the fact that many Christians have a a weak prayer life. Prayer is not a major portion or focus of their life, so they don't do it unless there's a problem. The spiritual apathy in the church is seen in the fact that many Christians have no idea what their spiritual gift is. I mean, they are given a gift by Almighty God that is intended to be used to build up His church, to advance the kingdom, to make a difference in the world. They have no idea what it is, and they simply do not care. Apathy in the church is seen... And that for many Christians, service and devotion to Jesus is virtually non-existent. For these sort of Christians, their idea of being devoted to Jesus is coming to church sometimes, giving some, not committing big sins, not cussing in public. And as long as you stay within those parameters, you're good to go. The most common excuse given for not reading our Bibles, not praying, not finding and using our spiritual gifts, not being active in our service to Jesus, is we just don't have time. And yet, statistically, the average American watches more than four hours of television a day. 28 hours a week, two months of non-stop television watching a year. In a 65-year life, the person who's the average will have spent nine years watching TV. Now these same people would say they don't have time to study their Bible. They don't have time to pray. They don't have time to find and use their spiritual gifts to serve Jesus. But they have time to watch four Hours of television a day. Now, of course, many don't watch four hours of television a day, but that four hours would be spent with surfing the net, piddling on the computer, reading a book, taking a nap, exercising, 
or engaging in some other hobby. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying watching TV, playing a game, piddling on the net, reading a book, taking a nap. These are evil, wicked, sinful things to do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is people claim not to have time to devote to their relationship and their service to Jesus, but they have time to take a nap. They have time to watch four hours of TV. They have time to read other books. They have time to do other things, but no time for Scripture. No time for prayer. No time to serve Jesus. The reality is, when I have more time in my day for television than for Jesus, it reveals what matters to me in my life. It is a sign of spiritual apathy. And we have to know that breaks God's heart. And it ought to break our hearts as well. One I'll cover quickly. I'll save it for another time. We we actually have a business meeting afterward too. And the last one is that Gaiman, Gaiman itself is spiritually dark. I mean, roughly 80% of our community sits in spiritual darkness. Not more than 20% of our community is in church on any given Sunday. Now, I, I, I did a poll once with the churches to find out. And this was several years ago. So it was about 80% not in church then, 20% in church. Since that time, I haven't done one recently, but since that time, at least two churches in Guyman have closed and our population has increased. So, nine, eight, nine years ago, 80% wasn't in church, 20% was. What is it today? Probably higher that aren't, less that are, be my guess. But a vast majority of our community, they either don't know Jesus or they don't care about Jesus. They see no importance to His church in their life. Again, these aren't just nameless, faceless numbers. These are... Our family members. These are our next door neighbors, our co-workers, our friends. And these are people who will die and go to hell. Where they will suffer for all of eternity if they do not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And they will go to hell in a town with around 20 evangelical Christian churches. I mean, we can throw a rock and hit two churches from our building. We can stand in the parking lot and see two or three churches. I mean, there is literally a church on every street corner in Guyman. And the vast majority of our town is dying and going to hell without the gospel. It has to break God's heart. And it ought to break our hearts as well. Now, when we, faced, when we are faced with hard, challenging facts like this, we tend to respond in one of three ways. We'll dismiss them. Right? We'll dismiss them with things like, well, 74% of statistics are made up on the spot and you can make statistics say anything you want to say. As true as that may be, all that is is dismissing things out of hand. It's not taking the time to think about what may be and what is really going on. As humans, we are masters of explaining away uncomfortable truths that we don't want to deal with. We can always 
find reasons to reject what we don't want to hear. We can always find reasons to reject what we don't want to accept or what we don't want to deal with. Some will hear this and they'll be like, no. Some will adopt the defeatist mindset. What can I do? And we'll just convince ourselves that these problems are just too big. Can't be fixed. It's always been this way. What, what can we do? The Bible says that towards the end things are going to get bad and worse. They're going to turn away from the hearing of the word and want to find people that will teach what their itching ears want to hear. But it's a defeatist mindset. I mean, it's not, that's not realism. That's not being a realist. That's a defeatist. That is a faithless attitude that leaves things unchanged in the world without hope. And just quickly, Jesus told the disciples, 12, make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. What a large mission for 12 uneducated men who had likely never left Judea. Aren't you glad they didn't say that can't be done? Aren't you glad they didn't say, well, people have always rejected our God. They're always going to do that because if they had accepted that mindset, the gospel never would have arrived in Guyman, Oklahoma. It never would have reached to us where we are so that we could be saved. Who in the world is waiting on us to say we can do what God would have us to do? I'm going to give our lives to it. So we can, accept, we can dismiss it, we can adopt a defeatist mindset, or we can let them sink in and let them break our hearts. We respond with rejection because these truths make us uncomfortable. And they should. I mean, they should make us uncomfortable. These facts should keep us up at night. They should invade our dreams. We must be like Nehemiah and let these facts sink into our hearts until they break our hearts. These things should weigh on our hearts until we sit down and we weep and we mourn and we fast many days crying out to the God of heaven to do something. To enable us to do something. Right? Because Nehemiah's prayer wasn't God do something in Jerusalem. It's God. Can I do something? Make me a person that you can use to do something. When our hearts are this broken over that which breaks God's heart, then, and only then, will we do what we can to make a change. Do the things which break God's heart break your heart? Are our hearts broken? They ought to be. And if they aren't, let's start praying tonight that our hearts would be broken over the things that break God's heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. I know tonight we've covered heavy things, Lord. So Lord, I ask that you would press on us with these heavy things. Our temptation is going to be to try to get out from underneath it. To not let it weigh on us. Don't let us do that. Let our hearts ache over our community that sits in darkness. Dying for lack of faith in Jesus Christ. 
let our hearts ache. The fact that church in America, Lord, even our denomination as Free Will Baptist, declining rapidly. And our hearts ache. Lord, at, at things that we didn't even talk about tonight. Things that have to break your heart. Let us be so close to you that our our heart, our, our hearts are broken over that which breaks your heart. Let us weep and mourn, cry out to you, and then rise up and work and do what needs to be done to make a difference in our town for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.